Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Thank you, Robert. Really, it's uh, been good to be here, my wife and I. uh, Sort of a praise, you know, what's it like? What's this church like? And we have been thankful for a body of people who seem very serious about their faith and and joyful and happy uh, people that get along. Don't take it for granted. Thank God. Keep it up. Keep up the good work. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. I'll be reading a number of verses beginning in verse 28. Our theme for the conference is with God and now especially Christ with us throughout our life, conforming us to himself. We begin in verse 28. This is God's word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And what is that purpose? It is this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then going down to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be or who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him not freely give us all things? And who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, I, I do pray that you would continue to bless this church by the reading of your word and meditation on your word. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. May our hearts be receptive to your word for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So my pattern today will be the pattern that I used uh, the last couple days, and that is exposition of the text, and then an internal and an external application. So what does the text say, and what does it speak to us? You might see in our heart, in our minds, our emotions, and then how might it manifest itself in the external world? But first, I'm going to orient you to Romans chapter 8. People sometimes say that Romans chapter 8 is the pinnacle of Paul's greatest book, the book of Romans. It's it's the time you've you've climbed to the mountaintop and you get to enjoy it. So if I may, I'll tell you a story. When I was eight years old, I saw a picture of the Rocky Mountains for the first time that really struck my boyish soul. And, And in this picture... 
there was a man on top of a mountain, sunset, you know, weathered face, and, and maybe 2,000 feet below him were the clouds. And I thought, this has got to be the most awesome thing that is possible in human life, to climb through clouds and look down in the clouds from the mountaintop. And about 28 years later, I got to do it with my 11-year-old adventurous daughter. We, we climbed one of the great peaks of Colorado together. We started down toward the bottom and, you know, the flatlands, the plateau, and it was a long hike, and we, we climbed through one layer of, of trees and a little higher than we're in the aspen groves. Those are the last big trees. And then and we're through the tree line and we're, we're exposed on the side of a great mountain. And then we're on a, we're on a hogback walking on a ridge, wildflowers on each side. And, and sure enough, as we ascended, a storm began to gather down below, or at least clouds. There were dark clouds. And, and we're maybe around 13,000 feet and, and, and about 1,000 or 2,000 feet below us, we're seeing the clouds slamming into the mountain at about 30 or 40 or 50 miles an hour. And then and they, you know, they dissipate and reform and, and created great arcs, 1,000, 2,000 foot arcs racing over the mountain, three, 500 feet over ahead. I thought this is, this is the most magnificent thing that could ever happen to a little boy, now a man with his daughter. And and I've climbed the mountains many times since then, and I learned that as exciting as the climb is, it's every bit as important to enjoy the mountaintop and to sit there and eat sandwiches that you would never enjoy under ordinary circumstances, but you're so hungry and you're cold and, and the sun is feeble, but it feels so wonderful, and you lay there as long as you can surveying the ground, the earth below you, and then when time comes, you go back down. Now, that's what people have said about Romans chapter 8 over the years. In Romans chapter 1, you begin way down in the flatlands of planet Earth with God's wrath toward the godlessness and wickedness of men and the way in which we curse and blaspheme and ignore God and go our own way, sinfulness. And, and we're not just offending God, we also offend each other. We, we're unrighteous, we're unjust, we mistreat our neighbors. And before too long, as the description of, of sin starts to end, there's a glimmer of hope. Maybe we're going to ascend a little bit. Very near the end of the description of sin, Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, we already covered sin. We sin against God and each other. But, but when it says have fallen short of the glory of God, it's implying that maybe glory can be ours. God made us to be glorious, not just to be holy, not just to be good law keepers, but to have splendor and majesty. And when we lie and cheat and steal and live for ourselves, there's not much majesty. But when, when we know God and we live lives of love and kindness and sacrifice and faithfulness and patience, we participate in his character and there is a glory in that. And then he quickly moves on to what Christ has done. And now we're climbing through the lower levels of the mountain and, and says that Jesus justified us freely by his grace. And he redeemed us through a propitiation in his blood. He offered a sacrifice to cover our sins. And he illustrates it through the life of people like David who loved God and yet committed great sins and called out for mercy and received mercy 
That's chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, we, we read that we didn't just get forgiveness. We were also reconciled to God. We have peace with God. We're his friends and we have a relationship. And we can stand in his presence without fear. In chapter 6, we're made new. We, we died with Christ and we rose with Christ. And there's no condemnation even if we sin. And now we get finally to chapter 8. And we're at the top of the mountain. And God says, Paul says, relax. Let's just think about it. Let's enjoy the mountain. And I'm going to help you enjoy it by asking you four questions. And the questions have to do with the great issues of life. The first question has to do with our allies and our adversaries. Who's on your side and who's against you? And the question is this, if God is for us, who can be against us? If we have adversaries, as long as we have God as our ally, what difference does it make? And then the question is of provision, and it goes like this. If God did not spare his own son, won't he freely give us all things? If he gave what was most precious and valuable, surely he'll give lesser things, our daily needs. The third question is touching our judicial standing. And the question is, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, the truth of the matter is many people bring charges against us, but who are they compared to God who says, this is my man, my woman, my child? And finally, security who can separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is no one and no thing can separate us. So let me walk through those four questions for a few minutes with you and spin it out a little bit. We're at the mountaintop. We're resting in what Christ has done. And the first question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's our translation. Some translations, a little bit more literal, say if God is for us, who is against us? Because the truth of the matter is, we do have people who are against us. And if you say who can be against us, it maybe implies that no one could ever be against us, and that's not true. In fact, our passage mentions persecution and the sword, and at the extremes, there are millions of your and my fellow believers today who are in danger of violence for their faith. In China, parts of India, Iraq, Iran, many places. And they have to answer that question experientially today. And throughout the centuries, people have always known, autocrats, dictators, have always known that Christians have a supreme loyalty to Christ that trumps all other loyalties. And that a believer is always a potential rebel because they're willing to die for their master. And so... And so we're always in some danger, at least, at least theoretically. Not only so, but we also have, you know, co-workers who don't like us. And we have, these are much more mundane, right? We have co-workers who don't like us and grumpy neighbors and, and um, you know, maybe even people at church who don't like us all that much. But the truth of the matter is, the greatest ally we have is the Lord and the greatest adversary is the evil one. There's a place in the book of Revelation where it describes the witnesses, those who testify to Christ. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of all who speak of Christ and are loyal to Christ and loyal to his cause and, and do so well, but then suffer for it. In fact, in Revelation 11, they die. They're killed after they finish their testimony. And the text says their dead bodies will lie in the great city, which is called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. 
And if you want to ask the question, who's against us, that's the answer right there. Sodom is pleasure, the life of pleasure, the quest for pleasure, for my happiness, my pleasure, my satisfaction. Right now, one of the greatest temptations comes from us and our desire to have pleasure. But from the outside, there is also Egypt, which is the city of the land of oppression and exploitation and slavery and bondage. And there are external forces. And then the third one, surprisingly, is the city where our Lord was crucified, which is Jerusalem. And actually, the Bible tells us in many times, in many ways, that, that false religion is one of the greatest adversaries. After all, who killed Jesus? It was religious people that wanted to put him to death. These are our three, three great foes. These are the foes against us. But the Bible says, God says in his word, I am for you. I am for you. And whoever's against you, as long as God says, I am for you, we're fine. Tiny number of places in the Bible when God encounters great rebels and terrible sin, he says, I'm against you. What a dreadful thing to say. But in Christ, by faith, God says, I am for you. The second question is, if God gave us his son, will he not surely give us all things? He gave his son to atone for our sins. Now, the way it describes it kind of literally is, if God gave up his son for us. And that little phrase, God gave him up, that little two-word phrase, is kind of a tip of the hat at the crucifixion narratives. Because that, those two words show up over and over in the crucifixion narratives. You see, the soldiers who arrested Jesus gave him up to the high priest. And the high priest gave him up to Pilate. And Pilate gave him up to the executioners. But Paul says, God gave him up for us all. So in all the betrayals and all the misdeeds and all the mistreatment of Christ, the greatest one is God giving Christ for you. And if God gives Christ for you, won't he give you everything else? And of course, the answer is he will, but we don't always feel that emotionally, do we? So about a year ago, I had a period of, of one, I'll call it, physical betrayal after another. I'm a, I'm a teacher and a preacher, and I lost my voice for about two and a half weeks, and I began to wonder if it would ever come back. That's scary when you lose your professional instrument, Right? And I also tore a ligament in my arm, and I also broke my toe, and I also had a really bad flu, and it was all at once. And I thought, Lord, what are you doing? I mean, come on. I didn't say it this way, but I was thinking essentially, aren't you for me? Why are you letting me go through all this illness? And so we have doubts. And of course, maybe when life is dark for other reasons, it's even harder when you doubt yourself. And so you have to remind yourself that our stand is not taken on how we're feeling today and what particular experience we're having right now, but the great principle that God gave his son for us. And we remember that, you know, if, if you're a mom or a dad, or maybe you even have a younger brother or sister, you've seen it, a, a really good mom or dad doesn't give every child whatever they want, right? The kids always want candy, and sometimes if you really love them, you say, how about an apple? And they want video games, and you say, how about a bedtime story? And they want to stay up till midnight, and you say, you'll be so much happier if you go to bed now. God doesn't always give us what we want either, but he does give us Christ and all things. 
that we need. Third question is, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And again, it sounds like, well, you know, if God's on our side, no one will dare to bring a charge against us. And we know that's not true. People do bring charges against all of us. All of us have heard accusations. We've been called hypocrites and and legalists. And we've been accused of covering things up that we aren't covering up. and, And all the rest. Everybody hears accusations. Some of them are illegitimate. Some are legitimate. The worst accusation that anybody ever hears is the accusation that comes from Satan to God saying, that man, that woman does not deserve your love and your presence. And there's some truth to it. In fact, there's a scene in the book of Zechariah chapter 3 where the high priest is standing in the temple and God and Satan are watching And the high priest, as you know, I know you've heard this, is supposed to be dressed beautifully and perfectly and and beautiful jewels on his chest and and blue and white garments. And and he's supposed to be pure, representing the people as he offers a sacrifice. And Satan says, he's covered with filth. He doesn't belong in your presence. And God does not say, oh no, the filth is immaterial. It's all fine. I'm going to overlook it this time. He says... Remove his filthy garments from him, and the angels do so, and clothe him in beautiful and perfect garments, and they do. And of course, a believer is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, when the charge comes against us, you don't deserve to be in God's presence. The answer is, that's kind of true, But immaterial, just stop, don't bother, because I have made them and declared them fit for my presence. So let's see, I've said there's all kinds of accusations from neighbors and coworkers and all the rest. And then there's accusations from Satan. There's one more source of accusation, and that is ourselves. We condemn ourselves. Now, I know the movie Chariots of Fire is quoted too much, but I'm going to quote it anyway. Just, and I hope I'm going to give you something that you've never heard about from the story. As you may know, the story is about two runners who were in the Olympics in 1920, real men, Eric Liddell, Christian, Harold Abrams, a Jewish man, and they were both striving for gold. And the truth of the matter is, I don't want to give it away, but they both won the gold. And Abrams was the first person, maybe, ever to hire a coach to photograph his stride and dissect his stride and and see if it should be a little bit longer or shorter and whether he should lift his knees a little higher. And people thought maybe that wasn't appropriate for the um, amateur ideal of the time. And people also noticed, besides this professional approach, that he didn't seem to enjoy running very much. And one person asked him, why do you run? He said, for me, running is a compulsion and a weapon. A weapon for what? A weapon against, against anti-Semitism. I want to prove for my people that we can run, that we can excel. He also said in the movie, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. If I don't win, my life is meaningless. That's his accusation that he leveled against himself. And in real life, he said, right before he ran, he said, I feel like a condemned man going to the gallows. That's self-accusation. And the Christian, Eric Liddell, 
was ready to go and in fact did go to China, spent the rest of his life in China. But first he was going to run the Olympics and, and when people asked, why aren't you going to China right away? Why, why are you running so much? He said, well, um, I believe God made me for China, but I also believe God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now here's the difference. Some people run or work or whatever it is they do, they run to earn pleasure to earn approval from the world, from the audience, for themselves, so they can say, my life has meaning. And the gospel says, you don't need to earn it. God gives you his pleasure. He has silenced the accusers. Your life is meaningful whether anybody recognizes it or not. So the charges against us fade away. The fourth question is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes on to offer some options, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. And again, these are real dangers. I'm sure as a church you sometimes pray for Christians living in lands where you can suffer for your faith. And, you know, during Sunday school we talked about Martin Luther for a second. Did you know that Martin Luther lived... Almost his entire Christian life after the Reformation, first six or seven, eight, nine months, maybe he was okay. But the rest of his life, he lived under a death sentence. The emperor said, if I get my hands on you, I will kill you. And he tried to be a man of his word. He didn't get to kill him, but that was his life. And God says, even if we die, nothing can separate us from love of Christ. So here are four questions. Since God is for us, who is against us? The answer is no one of consequence. And if God gave us his only son, will he not also give us all things? The answer is yes, he will give us all things. And if God justifies who will accuse, the answer is no one withstanding to do so. And can anything separate us from love of Christ? The answer is no, nothing can. Nothing can. This is the... This is the life we have with Christ. Paul says, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from our life in Christ. Now, I offered you, I told you I'd offer you an external application. And it comes from the first couple of verses I read to you. And it is this, that when we come to Christ, we're not just redeemed, but we're also, the text said, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That means that your destiny is to become as Christ-like as a human being possibly can. You'll never have his omniscience or omnipotence, but in character, you can be like Christ. You are, you are Christoform. That is to say, Christ is forming you and your life is increasingly taking the form of the life of Christ. You can imitate Christ because he's building you into himself. So I do have a grandson and a granddaughter and they both like me a lot and I like them a lot and they live nearby and they're my house a lot. And my grandson is an imitator and he found out really early on in his life that I can juggle. And I can juggle all kinds of things including some very beautiful multicolored balls. And when he sees me do it, he says, juggle, juggle, Papa. And, I, and he, before he could even talk, he'd go like this, Papa. And now when I'm done, he picks up the balls and no three-year-old can juggle that I've ever seen. In fact, most 33-year-olds can't juggle. But man, he throws the balls in the air and waves his hands around because he wants to be like Papa. 
And when he comes to my office, there happen to be two office chairs there when I'm upstairs and studying quietly. And he can't stand the thought that I'm there and he's not with me any longer. He comes up and, and he sits in the chair right beside me. And he knows my chair swivels, so he swivels and we spin around in our chairs. And we're imitators. That's who people are. And God says, you're an imitator of Christ. And the Lord is building you into Christ-likeness. And I'm going to give you one short, simple application. And I know that maybe something like 62% of the people or 55% of the people here are married. But I'm still going to use a marriage application. The rest of you can apply it to your relationships. I trust you if you're single to figure out how it applies in your single relationships. If you're being conformed to Christ, it'll show in your relationships. It'll show in your marriage. How so? Well, the Bible says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Did you hear it? As Christ loved the church. Now, how do you figure out what that is? Well, one great thing to do is to read the Gospels and see how Christ loved his people. And one of the things you notice when you read the Gospels with this in mind is how very patient Jesus was. Just a quick crowd divider. Who here would say you're a patient person? Raise your hand. Don't be shy. If you're a patient person, raise your hand. Okay, four hands went up. Who here would say you're impatient? Okay, there we are. The church, this is, a, this is an impatient church. And I'm an impatient person. And I notice how patient Jesus was with his disciples. He said, I'm going to the cross. They said, no way. He said, I'm going to the cross. They said, can we talk about something else? He said, I'm going to the cross. They said, hey, Jesus, you were talking about thrones a while ago. Can we get back to that? We like that topic a lot more. And so Jesus talked to them about the cross again because he was patient. Therefore, let us be patient with each other in our relationships. The passage says that Christ gives us all things. Marriage and other relationships, a great time to give gifts, isn't it? To imitate by giving things. Division of labor in our house with regard to coffee goes like this. My wife makes it at night and sets the timer. And in the morning, I bring her a cup of coffee when I think she is stirring. Just at that moment when I'm, I'm ready to get out of bed, but not quite. And that coffee, that smell right four feet away, that'll be perfect. And, and I enjoy, she enjoys making the coffee and I enjoy bringing the coffee. And, and I'm not trying to brag, but it's, it's a little bit Christ-like. Delighting in giving to each other. And, and husbands, I hope you don't resent how hard you work to bring home the food and provide for your family and kind of grump and complain, I work so hard. Jesus provided for his people joyfully. And you know, wives, if you earn more money than your husband, don't resent your husband. He has a good job. You have a good job. Praise God. Joyfully bring what you have. And as you wash dishes and wash floors and prepare meals, delight in giving meals and clean floors to each other. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? You know, the fact of the matter is, you and your spouse also have lots of charges brought against you, or you and your friends have charges brought against you. And it's most painful when your spouse brings a charge against you and accuses and criticizes. 
But Jesus defends us and speaks well of us. And so speak well of your spouse and speak well of your friends. And when you do so, you are Christ-like. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so let nothing separate you from your beloved. Let, what does Paul say, not famine or dangerness. So what would we say in marriage? Not, not boredom and wrinkleness, wrinkledness and comparisons and disappointing career and gray hair or anything else. Let nothing separate you from each other's love. And in this way, if we walk with Christ, it transforms us. That's the big idea. If we're with Christ, it will show. It will show in the thoughts that we have as we address the emotions, the feelings of life, the events of life. And it will show in the external world too. And that, of course, is what brings us to the Lord's table because nobody does all those things perfectly or even close, but we have a mercy for us. And it is the presence of Christ manifested supremely in these elements that gives us strength to live as those who belong to him. We'll turn there in a moment, but first let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this church, for the men and women here who delight in the gospel and and who want to stand or sit at the mountaintop and reflect on all that you've done for us and all that you're doing in us. And so, Lord, now as we turn to these elements, to the nurture, the presence, the sustenance we have in you, may we participate joyfully and meet with you here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.